John 3, I'm going to begin reading at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There are many things that we all have in common. But one thing that is true of all humanity, it's true of me and it's true of you, is that we will share at some point in our life the experience of suffering. Christian faith does not prevent suffering from occurring. Our faith is exercised in a fallen world. And pain and tragedy are consequences of the fall. And none of us, none of us are immune from that. The Bible does not hide that truth. Whether it's Job who suffered the loss of all things. Or Elijah, who fell into depression, wondering, God, why have you forsaken me? Or whether it's the disciples, who we are told in church history, all save one, died martyrs' deaths, suffering for Jesus. We can't ignore suffering. Church history doesn't ignore it either. Whether it be a church father by the name of Polycarp, who at the age of 86, after serving Jesus faithfully for the majority of his life, dies a horrific death at the hands of a wicked king. Or an Adonai Judson, first missionary to what was then called Burma, but now called Myanmar. He labored for seven years before seeing one convert. He buried his wife in that faraway land. 
He poured blood, sweat, and tears into translating the New Testament into Burmese. And just when he saw the end of his work at the, at the end of the tunnel, a fire destroys his house, destroying all the translations. This was a man that knew suffering. Or Lottie Moon, the namesake of our offering for international missions, who starves to death outside of Hong Kong. Or what about a David Brainerd? Missionary to the Indians. Setting an example for Jonathan Edwards by his piety. David Brainerd who cast a long shadow for the sake of the Lord. Dies at the age of 29 suffering from tuberculosis. I could go on and on. Now you understand the question that rises up in the scripture. How long go Lord? The question that you and I often wrestle with. Father why do the righteous suffer? Every one of us at some point or another have asked the question of God or maybe better yet the accusation in saying this is not fair. That's the question that arises in this text this morning. The presenting issue was a theological question of purification. But underneath it, there is really this, this undercurrent of God, this isn't fair. Why do the faithful suffer? Verses 22 through 24 set the scene. Two ministries have converged in the same place. Jesus and John the Baptist. They're both baptizing. It's a place where there is an abundance of water. And both are baptizing. But then that's where the issue arises. Verse 25 says there is this, this discussion between John's disciples and the Jew, a Jew over purification. Now purification dealt with being purified and being ready to worship. It was symbolized by washing. And baptism became a means of showing that one was purified. One was ready to be in the presence of God. What is said to John the Baptist shows that the issue of purification came over the question of baptism. Whose baptism could really make a person pure? John the Baptist or Jesus? That's why he comes. This, this person comes to John in verse 26 and he says, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, look. He's baptizing and everyone's going to him. Now understand what's going on in this question. There's jealousy. There's frustration that John is not being given his due. He is not receiving the honor that he deserves. In their culture, when it came to the issue of baptizing or teaching, the one who was considered the prime teacher is the one who would mentor people, but he was still considered the prime teacher. And when it came to baptism, the lesser would be baptized by the greater. So therefore, if John baptized Jesus, he must be greater. But the people aren't coming to John. Why not is behind this question. John should be receiving more honor, more attention, more respect than he's receiving it's not fair for heaven's sake John's been out in the wilderness wearing camel hair and eating locust now Jesus is getting more press than he is every believer faces this at one time or another John or James Dobson referred to it as the betrayal barrier moment when you feel betrayed by God Lord 
I've lived faithfully for you. Why can't I get a better job? Lord, I do my best to live the Christian life. I focus on Jesus. I don't understand why life is so hard. Maybe the question comes in this form. Lord, my husband served you faithfully for 50 years as a Sunday school teacher. And now he retires from his job ready to enjoy the last years of his life. And that dreaded word Alzheimer's has now come into the picture. God, this is not fair. And We're coming into a time of the year that magnifies this sense of unfairness. Because we look around at the holidays and we see the TV commercials with the perfect families. Where they wake up in the morning and the husband looks out and there's a Mercedes in the driveway with a ribbon wrapped around it. That ain't going to happen. We see the pictures of families gathered around the meal. And here's what happens. We look at this picture. And we look at our family and our situation. And we say, that's not us. Why can't that be me? God, why not? This passage deals with these issues. Because when we face them, the question is, how can we bear up under them without them crushing us? I know a lot of believers who, when that unfair question comes up, their response is to become angry with God because they expected something different. Or others simply check out in the faith. Oh, they'll come to church. And they still know the right words. But deep down, there is a distance from God and anger that is built up because they feel like God is not fair. So this morning, from this text, I pray that we will see our place in His plan. That even in the grief of our lives, even in the suffering that we face, we will not lose heart, but by His power, we'll recognize God is at work because our life, our history, our circumstances... All unfold according to God's plan. Verse 27, John responds by answering, A person cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. I want you to think about the scope of that. It's easy to say, God, thank you for the good things, the things that I think are good. But if we say, well, he only gives the things we think are good, but the bad things that happen, God had nothing to do with, Think about that for a moment. Is that not terrifying? Would it not be terrifying to think there's something operating outside of God's sovereignty? To think that there's some force, some entity, some illness, some suffering that can operate without God's hand? You see, my hope, even in the midst of suffering, is that God is working things for the good and for His name to be honored. The way I look at it is like this. It's an analogy I heard several years ago, and I hold on to it. It's like being at a parade. Christmas parades are coming up, and you find your spot at the parade. And when I was a child, I would seek out that spot where I felt like I could get maximum candy with minimal effort. The thing about a parade, though, is you find your one spot, and really, you may peer down the way to see what's coming, but you can't see that real well. All you can see clearly is exactly what is in front of you. But if we could go up higher, we could see the beginning and the end of the parade. We could see what is coming. Our view of life is what is in front of us. That's what we have. 
But God's view is over all things. And He is not only the one seeing all things, He is the one directing all things. So I have to remind myself, and I remind you this morning, that in the midst of your trial, God has not abandoned you. He is at work in the process and in the details of your life. We receive these things. Still doesn't answer the question of why. That's the question that pops up frequently, isn't it? Why? I've asked that question a lot. I still struggle with it at times, but I've come to realize this. One, God doesn't necessarily owe me an explanation. And two, there is no explanation to the why answer that I would find satisfying. There is still in my sinful nature that, that would call out and say, but you're God. You could have done this any other way. So you know what? I've stopped asking why. Well, that's not accurate. There are times I still struggle with it. But instead I say, what? Lord, what would you have me do today to glorify your name? Because my belief is that God is working in the details of the mundane to accomplish his purpose. Now to illustrate this, I want to go real old school. 1984. I know there was a, gosh, there was a gasp. <gasps> 1984, the Karate Kid, heads are shaking, the best Karate Kid. If you're not familiar with the story, Daniel moved from New Jersey to California. Doesn't sound too bad until he encounters bullies. He figures out the best way to fight the bullies is to learn karate or karate. So through a long series of circumstances, he becomes a pupil of Mr. Miyagi. Wise sensei. Daniel shows up for his first lesson in how to learn this, this, this ancient martial art of karate. And instead of being taught how to, how to fight, Mr. Miyagi hands him a paintbrush and says, paint the fence. Okay, fair enough. I paint the fence, get to the karate lesson. Spends a day or two painting the fence, up and down, painting the fence. Comes back next week for his karate lesson. He's ready to go. And now Mr. Miyagi meets him and he says, sand the floor. What? Sand the floor. Sand the floor. Spends a few days sanding the floor. Comes back the next week for his karate lesson. This time he's met with wax. You guessed it. Wax the car. Wax on. Wax off. Comes back the next week. Daniel's had it. You're supposed to be teaching me karate. All you've had me do is all of your manual labor, painting the fence, sanding the floor, waxing the cars. This is no good. I've had it. You are not teaching me a thing. And Mr. Miyagi says, Daniel, son. Stop me when I hit him. And he starts to hit him. And he says, wax on. And he says, the light dawns. That in every movement he was doing, he was learning something he needed for the fight. In the mundane stuff of life, he was learning what he needed for the fight. God's at work in the mundane. God's at work in the circumstances. You think, where's God? He is working, preparing you for the fight, whatever it may be. It is in God's hands. He has not abandoned us. Now, he is at work, and while we may not know the outcome, God does. And I firmly believe he is supplying what we need each moment to prepare us for that because all things come from his hands. That's why we remember that no matter the circumstance, fair or unfair, your purpose has not changed. It's interesting, John 
talks about who he is, his identity, his purpose. He says in verse 28, I'm not the Christ. I've been sent before him. You know that. John knows his purpose, what he lives for, and he knows the limitations of that. He's not the Messiah. He's not going to act like it. In fact, in verses 29 and 30, he gives an illustration. He says, I'm like the best man. Now, the best man in Jesus' time had a whole lot more responsibility than today. The best man was like the wedding planner. He had to oversee all the details. And so he took great joy when everything was focused upon the bride and the groom. That's what the best man wanted. So John's saying, I'm the best man. I want people to see Jesus. That is my purpose. Our problem is that we begin to define our purpose based upon our jobs. Your employment is not necessarily your purpose and should not be your purpose as a believer. If your purpose in life is making a widget or or going to the bank or whatever it may be, what happens when that stops? That's why there are many senior adults that become listless in life. Don't know what to do. Don't know how to spend their life because they've lived for 8 to 5 and now that that's done, they don't know what to do. And I'm telling you, believer, your purpose is more than punching a time clock. Your purpose is to make Jesus known. And that purpose lasts into eternity. Job, no job. Retirement, no retirement. Make Him known. That's why John says, my joy increases no matter who comes to me or who doesn't. What that means is in the good times and the bad times, the purpose is the same. In joy and in grief, the purpose is the same. In sorrow or in happiness, the purpose is the same. This two years ago, in 2016, there were 26,639 crazy people who ran the Boston Marathon. Out of those 26,000 some odd people, 72-year-old Fran Dortzt finished dead last. She crossed the finish line at 8.45 p.m. I think that's a good 14 hours after the race began. That's my type of running. But the real story was not her last place finished, it's what she was running for. Her husband is battling cancer and so she ran this marathon to support him and the Cancer Institute that's been applying his medicine and taking care of him. As one reporter said, it turns out that this race's loser is quite the winner. Why? Because she ran with a purpose more than self-glory. I'm convinced that in my life, I may not run the race quickly, but I will finish to point to Jesus. I've resolved that I may run with a limp, but I will finish to point to Jesus. I am determined that I may run this race with aches and pains, but I will finish to point to Jesus. And I encourage you to have the same attitude. And this is the reason, because He is our Redeemer. He is our hope of glory. He is our friend who sticks closer than a brother. He is the timekeeper of eternity. He is the one who holds death and hell. He is the one who is the resurrection and the life. He is the balm of Gilead and the rose of Sharon. He is the one who was dead and is now alive and will reign forever and no matter what happens in my life Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forevermore live for that now because he is all in all because Jesus is the focal point of life we understand our place by seeing that purpose and then measuring our suffering against him the words I've said do not erase suffering 
Okay, there is still pain, but our choice is to find our purpose in that pain and to look to Jesus to understand our pain and the unfairness of life. We have a tendency to gauge our heartache by comparing it to those around us. I sat down the other day and I figured out that since Emma got sick, which would be two years ago this coming week, we have spent 408 days in the hospital. 408 days. You hear a lot of things when you're in a hospital that long. I remember being in the ICU and overhearing people do that comparison game we do in the hospitals. Well, I thought my problems were bad, but it's not as bad as theirs. So I feel better. We became that family that everybody compared themselves to. I overheard that. I overheard couples. They didn't know I was listening. I guess I wasn't supposed to be eavesdropping. But I'd hear him say, oh, man, we got it bad, but look at that family. I even had a person come up to me and say, you know what? We're struggling, but then I saw you all, and gosh. And I thought to myself, I'm glad I could help you all out. Glad we were here for you. You know what? Looking at others, either in their suffering or their lack thereof, that's the wrong measuring stick. Verses 31 through 36, John the Apostle, I believe John the Apostle wrote these words, not John the Baptist. He turns to point to Jesus. It's as if in answering this question that John the Baptist has said, okay, yeah, it's not fair, but my purpose is to point to Jesus. Now we're reminded who Jesus is. So in the midst of our suffering, and when we struggle with our purpose in pain, we see Jesus. And there are three things I point out here. First, from verses 31 through 33, Jesus is above all. He, and that's Jesus, comes from above. He's above all. He was of the earth, belongs to the earth, and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now what he's getting at here is this. When he says of belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, it's referring to the fact we are created. We are finite. We speak of what we can't understand. We are limited in our knowledge. But the one who is from above knows all things. He is uncreated. He is eternal. He is infinite in His wisdom. He is unlimited in His power. He's saying that Jesus is above all. But look at the irony of verse 32. He bears witness to what He has seen and heard. Jesus talks about eternal things. Yet no one receives His testimony. Talk about unfairness. You're God in the flesh. You're the Word incarnate. You speak of eternity and people don't listen. Is that fair? No. Verse 33 shows the danger. Whoever receives his testimony, the testimony of Jesus, sets his seal to this. That God is true. In other words, to receive Jesus is to receive God. What Jesus does is what God does. So Jesus is above all. He speaks from a standpoint of infinite, infinite power. But Jesus also has the Spirit without measure. Look at verse 34. He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for He gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus came proclaiming and preaching. So what did God do? God gave Him the Spirit without measure. Unlimited Spirit. In other words, for the ministry that Jesus had, God supplied everything that was needed. He has the Spirit unmeasured to accomplish His purpose. So even pe people don't listen. Jesus is empowered for that. And then number three, Jesus has all authority. Verse 35, 
the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. All things. Life and death, power, authority, grace and judgment. All things are under the, the purview of Jesus. All things are under His authority. Now if we follow the exhortation of Hebrews chapter 12, and we run our race with perseverance, and we run it by fixing our eyes upon Jesus, we see that Jesus is above all, Jesus is empowered, Jesus has all authority. Yet, remember what Hebrews 12 says, that who, for the shame of the cross, the shame of the cross, that this Jesus who has all authority suffered as a willing victim of evil. The one with all power gave himself to the power of grief and death. The one with all authority submitted to the authority of one who upon this earth had the power to pronounce a death sentence. The one empowered for any task allowed his back to be beaten by blows from a mere foot soldier. Jesus endured all the unfairness of life. And he did it for our sake. But if I look at Jesus, I will also see the one from above could not be held by the powers here below. I see the one who had all authority could not stay under the authority of death indefinitely. And the one who has the spirit without measure will supply what is needed each day. By looking to Jesus, I see one who has suffered the unfairness of life. And I keep focused upon him knowing redemption is coming. The unfairness will be set right. That's why he says make a decision today. Verse 36. Believe in the Son. To believe in Him is to have eternal life. You know your redemption is secure if you believe in the Son. But whoever does not obey, notice the parallel ideas. Believe is to obey. And to obey is to believe. If you do not grasp Jesus, you do not have eternal life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Without Christ, there is no happy ending. Without Jesus, we cannot speak of redemption. Without Christ, we do not have the hope that all things will work out. But with him, we do. That's why I ask you this morning to resolve to say, my place in his plan is to make him known. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me today. Nathan and I are going to be standing at the front. This may be a time where you just need to say, Lord, I've gotten my eyes off of you. And it's easy to do. I don't stand up here as one who's figured it all out. I know the struggles that occur when you want to stay focused upon Christ, but life is hard. That's why 